Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's 2014, and Salma Hayek is walking the red carpet at the Cannes Film Festival in the south of France. She's there to promote her latest film, The Prophet. You can hear the clicks of the cameras, the shouts from the fans as they swarm to take a picture of the Hollywood star. She's dressed in a pink strapless gown as she poses proudly for photos. And in her hands, the hottest accessory on the steps of the palais. A piece of plain white paper with the words, bring back our girls. Took the opportunity because there were going to be so many photographers to, to put some pressure and remind them that we, we want these girls back. On that night, Salma spoke about the nearly 300 young women, teenagers, who were abducted from a remote village in Nigeria, more than 5,000 kilometers from where she stood. In one night, they were snatched by an insurgency group And Salma was one of the many celebrities, including former First Lady Michelle Obama and Pope Francis, spreading the message, bring back our girls, to draw attention to the issue. I'm Erica Vela, a journalist with Global News. Over the next two episodes, we'll go back to that night in Nigeria in April 2014 and introduce you to one of the girls who was there, abducted and eventually freed. I'll also tell you what happened to the group responsible for the abductions and find out if there's still a threat. This is Global News What Happened to the Chibok Girls and Boko Haram. The government of Canada lists Boko Haram as a terrorist group. In 2015, the Global Terrorism Index, which is published annually and attempts to rank nations according to their terrorist activity, listed Boko Haram as the most deadly terrorist group in the world. To find out how this Nigerian-based group formed and how they became so dangerous, I turned to David Otto. He's a counterterrorism and organized crime specialist. It was a... um seen more as a philanthropist um, movement because in reality, Mohamed Yusuf um, was giving a lot of assistance to young people. He was getting support um, from external networks. Um, so he created a huge following and, and this following became an attraction for politicians. David told me Nigeria has long been divided into ethnic and religious lines. The South is mainly Christian, while the North is majority Muslim. The original Boko Haram sect started in Maiduguri, the Borno state capital located in the northeast of Nigeria, by a charismatic Islamic radical preacher, Muhammad Yusuf. Yusuf was an Islamic cleric who ran a mosque and Islamic school that drew in vulnerable families and their children. David said Yusuf was a vocal opponent of Western education. So as far back as 2001, you had this movement of uh, young people that were following Mohammed uh, Yusuf on the basis that the establishment, especially in the northern part of Nigeria, was um, somehow being influenced by the West. You know, it was a system of governance which was tailored uh, towards uh, the Western style of education. And the youths who were mostly unemployed 
uh, uneducated in the Western education style and who had no future prospect. Um, only had the opportunity that a Sharia system could provide them. In 2002, Mohammed Youssef and his followers, who were known as the Nigerian Taliban, wanted to create an Islamic state in Borno. You know, these um, so-called Nigerian Taliban, they required a state which had Sharia law exclusively that produced no, um, you know, societal ills like prostitution, that forbade uh, women from mixing up with, with men uh, in, in public places, um, that allowed for Sharia law to surpass any other law, and that you know, uh, banned the production, the distribution, or the consumption of, of alcoholic drinks. In the early 2000s, Mala Kachala was the governor of Borno State, and one of his political opponents was Ali Modu Sharif. David said that in an effort to win more votes, Ali Modu Sharif allegedly made promises to Yusuf and his followers. He promised them, if you guys vote for me, I will ensure that Bonu has a Sharia state. In May 2003, Ali Modu Sharif was elected governor of Borno State. Once elected, he went back on some of his promises, and that upset Muhammad Yusuf and his followers. They had voted for a, a government that had promised to establish Sharia law. Uh, but when the time came, the governor had simply said that Nigeria was a secular state uh, and that each one was free to practice uh, their own religion, which you know um, was seen as a betrayal by the group. This betrayal eventually turned into anger. And by 2009, there was a law that came into effect that has been identified as a key moment in motivating Yusuf's followers. And it surprisingly involves motorbikes. The, the government said, you know, uh, people have to wear helmets. And Mohammed Yusuf's principle, according to his religion, uh, that he preached that, you know, you couldn't wear a helmet on, on a turban, uh, which it was against uh, the, the, uh, the ethics of the religion. Now, that is where clashes began to happen because police officers were given the power to stop anyone who did not wear helmets. Um, unfortunately, corruption played a role because most of the young people who were given motorbikes by Mohammed Yusuf to earn a living were stopped. Their bikes were not taken, but money was taken off them. And they would go back and report these incidents to the leader, who would then say, listen, they're doing all this because they don't care about you. They don't care about the jobs, that, that the fact that you're, you're unemployed and that I'm giving you a job. All they care about is to extort money from you. And this is how Western educated people are corrupt. David said Muhammad Yusuf's followers started putting signs on the back of their motorbikes with the words Boko Haram, which translates to Western education is forbidden. Whenever the police saw that, they immediately knew where they were coming from. And they would target those who had those, the, the Boko Haram written on their bikes. So this is how the violence began by these young people retaliating and targeting the police. And the police fighting back. And the, uh, the, the group then targeting the government officials because the government had promised them Sharia law and, and did not um, seem to have fulfilled the promise. As the months went by, things continued to escalate with more violence and bloodshed until things reached a tipping point. 
in July of 2009, the police and the Joint Task Force, which comprised the army, massacred several hundreds of youths. And this was because of an incident which involved, I think, two young men that um, were stopped by the police uh, for not wearing their helmets. And they, they refused to stop because they, their excuse was that the police was not stopping them to uh, enforce the law, but to extract um, money from them. And they, they were shot dead. So Mohamed Yusuf's group uh, planned a protest march, you know, ordered some weapons, you know, to retaliate against the police. And, and this is where everything break loose because uh, the police had gathered intelligence uh, that the young men who were protest- processing, uh, you know, were armed and several of them were killed. Mohamed Youssef was captured by state forces and was killed while in police custody. David said that's when the group declared war on the Borno government. The, the war was exclusively a very brutal one. They would assassinate politicians wherever they could find them. They would uh, launch attacks on, on police stations and steal weapons, um, you know, kill police officers because these was these were the main targets. They would invade prisons and free prisoners because they needed manpower. The initial targets uh, at the time was not the local population. Uh, they, they they were very specific in their targets. Um, they would target rich people because they considered them the the elites who were benefiting from the wealth of the state without equal distribution to the youth. They would attack anyone who was found to be a, a sellout or somebody who reported their activities to um, the, the government officials. So schools were being targeted again because they, they believed that um, Western education was the source of the, the, the corrupt governance system. So they would bend down schools because they didn't believe it, it produced any positive impact to the community. To deal with the attacks from the group, the government called in the army. And according to David, that led to disastrous consequences. Unfortunately, the army was not very much accustomed to responding to asymmetric uh, warfare. Uh, They did not know who the members of Boko Haram were. They didn't have enough briefing. And what that transpired to was a scenario where the army had to basically carry out killings, you know, without, um, you know, distinguishing between who was innocent and who wasn't. You know, unfortunately, because of the fact that they themselves couldn't really identify who members of the communities were. And now how did the community, how was the community then pulled into the target list of Boko Haram? It was when the military was drawn in. Um, The military would then harass the communities to produce the, the people that were behind these movements. And as soon as the community began to cooperate with the military, the, then the war became a war for everyone. And, and Boko Haram began to target not just uh, the, the people that were initially on the list, they, they began now to target the communities because they saw the community as having joined the side of the state. As the community cooperated with the government, Boko Haram was forced to retreat to the Sambisa forest to avoid capture. The forest is about 520 square kilometers of sprawling mountainous hills covered in lush trees, and it offered shelter for the terrorist group. In 2009, after Muhammad Yusuf's death, the carnage continued under the reign of Boko Haram's new leader, Abu Bakr Shakao. The expectation of the 
the government was that uh, by killing Mohamed Yusuf, it will uh, remove the uh, that leadership uh, respect that his followers had for him. Little did they know that Abu Bakr Shikau will be worse and a lot more violent, um, a lot more feared between him himself and his his commanders. You had other atrocities which um, were taking place, the suicide bombings, attack on mosques, on churches, um, people being abducted, Boko Haram walking from door to door, intimidating parents to donate uh, their children to join the, uh, join the movement, failure to do so. A lot of them were killed as a result. Uh, some of them were forced to flee away from, from their homes. So Shekau's leadership, mantle of leadership, was, was one that uh, backfired. In 2011, at least 21 people were killed, and over 60 others were injured after a bomb erupted at a United Nations headquarters. Boko Haram claimed responsibility for the bombing. Under Shekau's leadership, Boko Haram cemented their terror on April 14, 2014, I remember the story clearly. 276 girls were abducted from a boarding school in Chibok, a small town in northeastern Nigeria. Over the past seven years, I have often wondered what happened to those young women. So I turned to my colleague, Brennan Leffler. He's a freelance investigative journalist and a documentarian. He traveled to Nigeria with Canadian journalist Melissa Fung in 2017 and 2019 for their documentary called Captive. So we first traveled to Nigeria in 2017. Uh, we were speaking with a fixer named Kabir. He's a journalist in Yola, which is near Borno State, which is the, uh, the birthplace of, of uh, Boko Haram. Kabir had covered the insurgency extensively. And he knew a lot of uh, women and girls who had been kidnapped and either escaped or been rescued. So we were talking to him about trying to meet some young women who had come back for them to tell us what the experience was like and how they were doing. Because obviously, when you go through something like that, um, it's not over when you escape or get rescued. The trauma follows these girls, and they were girls. We spoke to, we met three young women who we were following, um, and the youngest of them was 12, and I think the oldest was 15 when they were kidnapped. So the things that they told us, um, very difficult to hear. Brennan also introduced me to Grace Dinladi Sally. Grace was in Chibok on the night of the kidnappings. Her husband, Dinladi Sale Idrisa, was the town's doctor. After they got married, they lived in Chibok, a remote town made up of several villages where Dinladi was the only doctor, and electricity was so scarce, they had to use a generator. In the middle of the night, on April 14th, Grace and Dinladi were in bed when the ground shook. Our generator was on, and it was after, like, maybe two hours or so that... um, (laughs) Uh, my husband hurriedly, like we had our the entire house shake, like it was. We had the sound boom, and the house, entire house was shaky. The glasses, the windows were shaky, and my husband decided, okay, let let him off the gen. Maybe there's something wrong, 
outside that we don't know. Maybe the gen is faulty or something. Within moments, Grace realized the sound they heard was not the generator. Instead, it was something far worse. Her husband and Lottie rushed into the house. And banged the door and rushed into the room. He just screamed in um, in Hausa language, trying to tell me that, oh, these people are around. And once he said these people are around, I already know who they are. So immediately I fainted. That was the first thing that happened. I fainted. I just slumped to the ground because I knew from all the stories we've been hearing, um, once they attack, it is just dead. There's no way you can come in contact with them and be alive, except it takes a miracle. Boko Haram invaded the small Chibok village. Grace was just a few kilometers away. I was horrified. I couldn't breathe. It's the same thing with my husband, but I think he was braver, but I couldn't breathe. I was thinking of heaven already, like (laughs) how many angels are going to receive me, you know. I was really horrified, and it's a terrible feeling. It's not something you wish even your enemy to go through. It's It was really, it was life-choking. Like, you just feel like the life out of you is gone. You're not dreaming about, you're not even thinking about anything. You're not thinking about, you know, my life just flashed before my eye. It was like I was trying to say goodbye to my own self. We were just thinking. We were horrified. We were scared, really scared. You know, we were terrified. Adrenaline took over, and the couple got in touch with local police to find out the best way to escape. We could hear screams. We could hear chantings. We could see the fire set. Every, it was it was like th- those war movies you see, you know. You can't describe it, but the p- mental picture is in your head. He told him that, okay, uh, maybe you run to the mountains. That would be much more safer because the entire village is on the mountain hiding. So you could as well join them. But you have to be careful. Watch your back. Because we, the police officers, uh, we don't have much, you know, ammunitions to counteract the attack. We prayed and then we jumped. He first jumped over the fence. And we could hear noises, we could hear, we could see fire, you know, places were littered up with fire. We could hear gunshots. So he jumped through the fence and then um, he told me that if he, if I hear he screams, that means I shouldn't come. But if he whispers to me, then I should come over the fence. And he whispered and then I went over the fence. Grace and Dunlady trekked three kilometers to the mountains. And when they arrived, they saw others from the village who had also managed to escape. We saw that many people were there on the mountains hiding. How we got to know people were on the mountain, somebody called out um, like it was a coded information because they had this local vigilante also watching people over on the mountain. Uh, the village vigilante, few of them were trying to watch over the people on the mountain. So they call out in the local dialect and then my husband responded and they say, okay, come over here, come over here. The entire, most of the people from the town are there. And then that was how um, we now found a place behind the mountain and we stayed there. And although we couldn't literally see everything that was happening, But we could see cars, you know, 
we could hear move, we could see the lights uh, fog lights of cars movement and lights and you know shootings and exchange of fire at some point we'll have to lie down so that um you know we would not be hit by any of the stray bullets that was being dispersed as bad as things were while on the mountain grace learned of a shocking turn Someone had told her about the abducted schoolgirls. So one of the vigilantes came back. The man was saying that he thinks these girls were being kidnapped. Although he hasn't seen it with his own eyes, but he, he believes that they were because they were far from where he is. And he could hear um, like the noises of schoolgirls because he wasn't too far from where the school is. And he saw that the, the, the Boko Haram people have surrounded the school. So that was the first time we had the information. And we started praying for them on the mountain, hoping that the news we're hearing, it's not true. While they were safe from the violence, the anger, fear, and grief was palpable. By the morning, it was confirmed. Boko Haram had abducted almost 300 schoolgirls who were preparing to take their final exam. In one night, they were stolen away from the world. Parents were crying, people were running. Others from far away village are rushing down to the school on foot, like very far, a lot of kilometers. So parents, I believe, started trekking since the night they heard that these girls were abducted. They started rushing down into Chibok town from different villages uh, uh, to come and check on their daughters to see if they were safe or not, or maybe the news they had was true. And so most of the women also from the mountain who had daughters were already crying, fathers were crying, rushing to the school. 276 young girls were ripped from their families without warning. One father spoke about what he heard that night. I had the cry or the shout of the student because I'm very close to the school. They camped them near Chubok, not more than 30 kilometers, and no helping hand for good 11 days. After the abduction, Boko Haram released videos of the schoolgirls. The video shows the girls dressed in dark colored robes. They were forced to marry fighters and endured beatings and rape. The leader of Boko Haram, Abu Bakr Shakao, also released a video claiming responsibility for the kidnappings. He said he would be selling the young women as slaves. But the horrors they would have to endure wouldn't end there. One who escaped wrote about her experience. I was among the girls trained to shoot I was also trained how to use bombs and how to attack a village. Osai Ojego, the director of Amnesty International Nigeria, said she vividly remembers the grief relatives and the community members felt following the kidnappings. Uh, Families in Chibok were distraught. Definitely uh, those of us watching the scene unfold on TV and hearing about it on radio and seeing the news reports, where we couldn't believe it. Um, and a lot of families, a lot of family members in neighboring villages reached out immediately to the schools. They wanted to see how they could support. Everyone was asking the local authorities what they were going to do about it. Families stayed in the school area for days, 
crying, weeping. Um, and then they, that was when they also started organizing themselves because they quickly learned that the government didn't think this was such a serious issue. Osai says people were angry. They accused the Nigerian government of acting too slow. There were even reports that the Nigerian military was warned the attack was coming, but did nothing to stop it. Amnesty quotes senior officers as saying two Nigerian military bases were alerted repeatedly, but shied away from engaging the heavily armed militants. They had warning that this, this, that this school was under threat and nothing was done to save these girls. The first reaction of the Nigerian government was quite worrying because they were in denial. They said no, no girls were taken. Then um, they tried to say, OK, we're trying to get information. Then they tried to reduce the number. Oh, are we sure we don't yet have the exact numbers? And to date, I think even the number of 276 is, is symbolic. The, the girls... Probably more girls were missing or taken, um, but due to the lack of uh, response at the initial stages where we could have gotten more information, we will never know for sure how many girls were taken that night. And so a lot of the civil society thought government should have a plan, so they shouldn't just say, oh, to the families, um, we're going to find your girls, but they should share a plan about how they will go about it. Of course, the government came out to say that since this, this is a very delicate situation, they don't want to give away their intelligence and they need to have some amount of information um, secrets so that the military can carry out their task. The lack of transparency in the process all through was worrying and led to quite uh, some misinformation um, in the public domain, and government did not do much to allay people's fears or to correct the misconceptions. The outrage grew and extended to other parts of Nigeria. So initially, the plan was let's have um, protests in front of various government agencies. So it was mass protests in the streets of Lagos and Abuja, and gradually um, a media campaign was also evolved, whereby activists to give interviews, uh, people were reaching out to those who were in Northeast to see how they can reach the families of the missing girls. And social media also played a role. And someone coined the hashtag bring back our girls, which then quickly um, took a life of its own <laughs> and got people who would not normally be called NGO people or civil society activists now also got more involved in campaigning and calling on the government to do something. Weeks later, the hashtag reached North America and Michelle Obama spoke about the abductions. Like millions of people across the globe, my husband and I are outraged and heartbroken over the kidnapping of more than 200 Nigerian girls from their school dormitory in the middle of the night. This unconscionable act was committed by a terrorist group determined to keep these girls from getting an education. Grown men attempting to snuff out the aspirations of young girls. And I want you to know that Barack has directed our government to do everything possible 
to support the Nigerian government's efforts to find these girls and bring them home. The video was released along with a photo of the First Lady holding a plain white sheet of paper with the words, Bring Back Our Girls, written in black marker, and a tweet that read, Our prayers are with the missing Nigerian girls and their families. It's time to bring back our girls. Suddenly, we began seeing photos of other celebrities, Kim Kardashian, Dwayne Johnson, Malala Yousafzai, and many others all using the same hashtag. It took intervention of notable uh, women like um, the then First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama, tweeting about it and carrying a postcard with hashtag bring back our girls. And people like Malala, who, of course, people knew her story um, as a young girl fighting for education in Pakistan, who was shot by the Taliban, also calling Bring Back Our Girls and seeking audience with the president of Nigeria then for that movement to pick up online and then led to greater mobilization of people across Nigeria. So it, it now went beyond Lagos and Abuja and Chibok, of course, where the girls were taken in Bonu State to a national call, a regional call and an international mobilization strategy. Osai says the Bring Back Our Girls campaign was really a first-of-its-kind social media campaign, and it brought the world's attention to the plight of the 276 young girls who were abducted thousands of kilometers away. People in North America, Europe, and other parts of the world put pressure on the Nigerian government to do more. What hashtag Bring Back Our Girls showed was that online activism was going to transform the way we mobilize and campaign for human rights, particularly for women and girls. It also showed that if you find the right uh, spokespeople, because in this case, Nigerian women just speaking um, about the issues that concerned us did not resonate with the world. But when women leaders, global leaders, started tweeting bring back our girls, it got attention. So international uh, recognition is important. And that is why even when we advocate for justice here in Nigeria, we also take it to the hallways of the United Nations and the African Union. Because when it gets that global attention, it resonates much strongly at home. And that is something that we would like to recreate again. But we know that for Bring Back Our Girls and the fact that Michelle Obama and Malala were able to latch on to it, transformed the focus and the attention. Weeks after the abduction, Grace said she visited the school to see firsthand the devastation that took place on April 14th. I saw the hall where the girls were taking their exams as of that time. I saw their uniforms that were half-burned. I saw burned classroom, hostels, and 
uh, one of the local security man there like narrated from what hostel they ran to which hostel and how they were gathered in the center of the school by some of the Boko Haram some of them were sleeping so it was really emotional to me like I can't imagine like being a student just an innocent young girl trying to write my final high school exams and then this thing happens to me and some of them have not been found yet. Of the 276 young women abducted, 57 escaped. Another 107 were released. There are still 112 girls missing. Grace and her husband lived through that night in 2014, but it continues to haunt them. She told me it's something that thousands of people in Nigeria experience every day. People are still living in fear. Let me tell you the truth. This is like, what, seven years? People are still living in fear. The fear is still there. Of course, even I myself, I still live in fear. I'm very devastated. Anytime I hear about Boko Haram, even in the news, I'm scared. Not even talk about knowing that I'm within the same vicinity with them. You know, so the, the, the trauma and the fear is still there. So many people escaped. Those that cannot escape are still back in the town. The fear is there. The trauma is there. We didn't expect 14th of April to happen. So it's just like you're sleeping by grace and then you're waking up as a miracle. So every day is a gift. To, to anyone living in northeastern Nigeria, every day is a gift. Anything can happen. You could be, sometimes I could be in the market, you know, shopping. And then I'll say, what if these people attack now? And then you see all of a sudden I start sweating. My palms are sweating and I'm trying to rush to see that, um, you know, I get out of the crowd or something. I even avoided crowd for a long time. I couldn't attend family wedding events. I couldn't go for any event. I was scared because I felt like they could just show up at any time. The worst of all is that even my night, like even to stay out late at night is also another problem. So for the people, if I could feel this way, then for someone who does not have the means of relocating to his possibly safer environment, how would that person feel? it will be more horrifying than it is to me because the feeling is still there, the, fi- the fear is still there. In April 2014, families in the town of Chibok were torn apart. But it's important to note that this wasn't necessarily a unique occurrence. Thousands of young women and girls have been abducted by Boko Haram since their inception. What made Chibok unique was the sheer number of women abducted in that one night, 276. Brennan traveled to Nigeria twice, and he had told me the threat of Boko Haram is like a shadow that lurks. People never know when they'll come, but they know it's always a possibility. First of all, you don't get very many foreigners in northern Nigeria. So foreigners showing up is very dangerous to the foreigners, but also potentially to anyone that is seen with them. So the girls that we spoke to, we had to uh, hire uh, our fixer to hire a driver 
to pick them up and take them somewhere where they wouldn't be visible to the general public because if anyone would see them with us, they could be targeted and uh, targeted with violence or, or insults. There's a lot of fear and tension around discussing this and we had to be very careful to not allow anyone to see these girls with us for fear of what might happen to them once we were gone. As part of their documentary, Brennan and Melissa spoke with other survivors who weren't from Chibok, but they were taken to Boko Haram's hiding spot in Sembisa Forest. Brennan spoke about a mother and daughter, Hawa and Asmao, who were both taken by Boko Haram when Asmao was just 12 years old. So they separated them in the camp and they forcibly married Asmao. And it's important to realize that when we talk about marrying, what they mean is these girls are the property now. Beaten, sexually assaulted, and witness to unimaginable violence. Many never escape their captors, but if they do, life doesn't get easier. When they escape, they, they go wherever they can, where people don't know them usually. Because again, when you come back from them, there's all kinds of suspicion about whether you're a spy, whether you may be coming back to bomb of the village. Um, Boko Haram is known for uh, sending uh, women and girls and children, uh, male children too, but, but women and girls... They're known to uh, use women and girls as suicide bombers more than any other group in, in, uh, in terrorism. So you can imagine in a village that may have been attacked or been under the, the stress of, of living under the stress of wondering when Boko Haram might come, uh, a girl shows up out of the blue and claims that she escaped Boko Haram there's going to be a lot of suspicion of that girl. Like, are they a spy? Are they gathering information? Are they going to set off a suicide bomb? Are they going to tell uh, people in Boko Haram that there are people here criticizing them? So, yeah, it's, it's really difficult for these girls. I wanted to speak with one of the girls, hear her story, to find out what that night was like and hear about the journey to Sambisa Forest. They took us from the school. They took us unaware. It was in the night. Hanatu Stevens was one of the 276 girls kidnapped from that school in Chibok on April 14, 2014. What was life like in the camps? And how was she freed? Find out next time on Global News What Happened To. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velezquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. Thanks to Stephanie D'Souza for editing assistance. A special thanks goes to Brennan Leffler and Kabiru Anwar for their help contributing to this episode. Also, thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for new stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.